Hello ladies and gentlemen, I'm Judith Fallon-Reed and welcome to Shelf Life TV, where I have great conversations with Caribbean authors about their lives and books. If you have yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so. You'll always know when new episodes are available. The video of this episode is available also on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and check out my website at jfallonreed.com. Also, check out my other podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now it's time to share what's on my shelf. Today on Shelf Life, we meet Patricia Lindsay Fletcher, author of Hezekiah, Many Houses, One Life, a historical novel that is a gripping tale of class, race, and family struggles in the colonial era of early to mid-20th century Jamaica. Please like the page and share this episode with your friends. Welcome to Shelf Life, Patricia, Patricia Lindsay Fletcher. So good to have you on Shelf Life. Good to, good to... See you. Thank you. I've been longing for this day. I've heard so much about you. Oh, okay. I researched a bit online and you're quite phenomenal. Oh, and what? so I Thank have you. been dying to have this exchange with you today. I hope I can live up to your standards. <laughs> oh, please, please, please. My standards are just be me. <laughs> That's my standard. My standard <laughs> is just do you. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very big on do you be you as long as it doesn't infringe on somebody else's rights and it doesn't you know hurt other people i'm all good for just people being people because it's a you, you only have one life eh so i believe right. we should live it and enjoy it and mm-hmm. you have been living and enjoying your life and you have your great book here hezekiah which um many houses one life which mm-hmm. is an interesting read you know it's funny when you say hezekiah the first thing that comes into my head is the bible hezekiah King Hezekiah. That's right. <laughs> right. So at first I thought, okay, this must have something to do with King Hezekiah. But then you look at the cover and you're like, no, King Hezekiah didn't look like that. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to get into the book. But before we get into the book, as always, we want to get into Patricia. What makes you tick? Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you grew up, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it's you know not a very, um, you know, interesting stories, just a standard Jamaican upbringing. Um, I lived in the Maryvale, Constance Spring Road area, going to Queens, and it just was convenient that I went to the prep school, the junior school, and the high school, and graduated from there, all-girls school. So, of course, by the time we hit sixth form and started interacting with the JC boys, then that created a big commotion because they would visit us on the, on the Queen's campus and the headmistress would be having a conniption and all of that. So it was really, I think the fact that I grew up in a church school, though, um, has always kind of a, um, sort of blanketed me with a feeling of constraint and conservative in, conservatism and restriction. In other words, like even seeing me without sleeves today is a, bit, is a breakthrough for me. Because growing up in school, you know, you always felt you had to be yeah. properly covered and all that kind of thing. So that's the context, really, going, growing with the bishop and the deaconesses and all these people's scripture. That was the foundational pillar of my, you know, developmental years. And then I also did well in school. But um, towards the end of the, in the adolescent period, I got involved in the Black Power movement. Oh, nice! And um, all the revolutionary, um, you know, literature that was in vogue at the time. You know, the Franz Fanon, and the Marcus Garvey, and the, um, you know, all of them. So 
I what happened is that I was raised in a very privileged um, environment because okay. of the Hezekiah, who was my grandfather, who was very wealthy and had bequeathed most of it to my father. So although my father and mother were not together, we got a lot of um, benefits from that wealth, right. just in lifestyle, in the trips we were able to take and, you know, all that kind of thing, the elocution, the language training, the piano lessons, all these things that right. were quite expensive and which we didn't really appreciate that much when we were young. But as, you know, as in later life, we certainly appreciated it a lot more, the privilege of that life. But at 18, though, the, the, the pendulum swung into the more revolutionary mode. And um, I began to associate and investigate the, 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 um, the ghetto of Kingston, you know, that people, everybody didn't live the way we did right. and have the privileges that we did. What um, I as a matter of fact, it was Orlando Patterson's uh, Children of Sisyphus mm -hmm. that I think really cracked my cranium and um, forced me to really consider the reality of what was happening in Jamaica to the masses of the people um, at that time. Because that was, again, reading in the 70s. Children of Sisyphus <laughs> was an eye-opening novel for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. It was like a breakthrough when Children mm -hmm. of Sisyphus came out and, you know, we were reading it and you're like, whoa, you know, where did this come from? Because up to that point, we were so entrenched in the British literature and, you know, everything being the Queen's English and all that kind of stuff. And here was this book that was just raw and open and showing us our own country and people who were living in a way that we weren't even aware of people that were living like that, you know? So yeah, I can imagine how that would be a big eye opener for somebody who came from a privileged background and didn't even realize how privileged they were <laughs> until they read something like that. So you are now living in Canada? Yes, so I live in Whitby, Ontario, which is in the outskirts of the GTA, and um, have been here for over 30 years. Okay. So, of course, initially, the, the, the goal was to try to assimilate, because the, then when I just came, immigrants were, you know, not as widely dispersed here as right. they are now. So, the, you know, it was really a completely different society and atmosphere. No, no, our culture is embraced here. It's elevated, it's celebrated. Yeah. But when I just came, that was not the case. So it was a bit of a culture shock in many ways. And then a Christian group from Jamaica, well, a group of immigrants from Jamaica connected to a church in Jamaica came together to form a little group. And that sort of helped to strengthen and restore my sense of my Jamaican identity. Okay. And that, that was a pivotal point for me. And that happened in 2000, early um, 2000s. So, um, yeah. And then uh, coming along, I retired from the insurance industry. Okay. And then uh, that was when I picked up a part-time job with a, a school bus, um, a, a, a school bus company. You were driving? Um, driving the big bus. Yes, I, I got a license to, to drive a okay. big a 72-seater school bus. Whoa, all right. And, but then now, having embarked on that and driving that bus is when all the childhood memories of my upbringing came back very graphically to me. Really? And then I remembered my father and grandfather and their bus business, and then all the thoughts of what could happen, what had happened, you know, what didn't happen, and everything about the lifestyle from then just came flooding back and I started to record it on my phone 
And then I started to write notes in a book. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, you know, I want to write about this grandfather because I never met him. Right. He died when I was seven years old. And yet his life, his, his achievements had, had such a big impact on our lives. You know, the third generation's the life. third generation, yeah. It, it's the book. So the, let me talk about the book because the book threw me in the beginning. I must tell you. I, I was like, hold on. It's being written by somebody in heaven. You know, <laughs> um, it, I'm used to people writing about people who have passed, but they're writing. And it started out with the person who had already passed, now writing the book and mm-hmm. looking back at their life. And that, at first, I, it took me about a good three minutes to figure out what was happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, hold on. When I transitioned and I realized, wow, this is a really cool way to start a book, um, to write about somebody's life, but from the perspective of the person who has already transitioned and yes. you know, their, their family talking about them. So tell me about Hezekiah, tell, us, tell our audience about the book, because this book is based on your family, your grandfather. Right. And um, yeah. it takes us all the way back to Panama when the Panama Canal was being built. Mm-hmm. And so many Jamaicans, went to help to build the canal. So tell us about yeah. and, and and what- Well, it was about 40,000 workers from the, it was about 40,000 workers from the Caribbean, mainly Jamaica and Barbados that ended up there. And um, the reason, well, I it was a big struggle to choose the narrator for this book because I thought Hezekiah could do it. I thought maybe his, his wife could do it or his cousin could do it. And then I had submitted the manuscript, the first draft to a friend to read. And she said, you know, this idea of it being told from by the great grandmother from heaven would, would work. It would, be, it would be good. So develop that idea. And then why I thought it was good too is that it created a spiritual line through the book, like a, right. a plumb line for the book, um, because, you know, everything else was going to be more secular. All the other events in the book would be more secular. So I, I wanted to have a spiritual thread throughout the book as well to show that, you know, there are choices that we make in terms of, you know, our will and God's will type of thing. Right. So, and guidance that we need and, and, and different ways in which people access that. So that's how she came into it. But I did a lot of research because actually, because of her double barreled um, last name, Right. A lot more information came up on the heritage site about my great grandmother, who is narrating this story, than for some of the other characters, because so, she kept her maiden name, right, and she kept her her married name, and she had all these other married names that she had. And she's right. the one who starts out telling the story of of right, the right. and yeah. um, it was interesting because she had so many names. <laughs> it's like okay. I can- I kept trying to keep track of her names, you know? And so yes. now I, I understand why, because she just kept adding names. Well, I find that intriguing because Jamaican women, I don't know about women elsewhere in the world, but I notice most Jamaican women that I know keep the family name and add the married name to it. Yeah, the double barrel. And I had a little bit of a conflict about that because I felt if you're entering a covenant of marriage, maybe you should just you know give up that family thing and, and go with it but now doing do, from the historical perspective it is more valuable and important to have that name 
because if anyone is doing research on you, then it a lot more springs up um, that way. You know, you're not just with the crowd. Right. It, 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 it separates you. It helps to identify, identify you as a unique person. Yeah. Tell me about Hezekiah. Hezekiah, 1948, he was a, you know, commercial um, entrepreneurial mogul. He had got the contract to operate the first National City Bus Service, which was really a partial contract, which had a lot of um, conditions attached to it, which the research I did in the socioeconomic studies says were, were unfair, right? They were undue hardships for him to qualify in the end to fulfill on that contract. Right. So it's puzzling to me that he even signed off on it. However, he seemed to have been, he seemed to have felt exonerated as a cold black man in a colonial societal context by being offered this through the labor government and the governor and whatnot, you know. So he, I think it was a, a matter of ego. He felt because the mulattoes didn't accept him, the whites didn't accept right. him because of his color and his lack of, you know, like um, high school and university education. Right. He was a mechanic, right? So, and Jamaicans tend to look down on the trades, right. you know, the more aspiring to be more academic. Doctor, so all those lawyer, factors, anything that all those her. factors, yeah, I believe all those factors felt, um, you know, played into his acceptance of what was to me a questionable um, contract that he was offered. If, so anyway, he- If I can say though, that you touched on, on why I think Hezekiah took that contract. For a black man at that time, mm -hmm. in those colonial times, to be offered such a contract was not normal. So you kind of, you kind of took it and ran with it because it wasn't the best deal on the planet, but I got a deal. You know, right. um, the, the who we are today, looking back, we can look back and say, well, that was a really bad deal. Why did he take it? It's like right now, the whole argument with the Maroons and, you know, the, the treaty they signed and why could, how could they sign such a treaty? But when you, it's, it's easy for us looking back with hindsight to be able to say, why would somebody do something like that? But mm -hmm. when you're in that situation, 200 years ago, when nobody else got a deal like that, you saw it as a deal. Yes, so it was very exciting times. Well, it was very violent with the unions because you see the, the national um, identity and fabric was just beginning to emerge from 1938 with the recognition of the union movement, you know, emerging uh, political parties being formed in Jamaica and you know, just a, a beginning of um, self, uh, self-government, self, yes, self, you know. So um, it was that atmosphere that really was conducive, actually. The timing in history was in his favor because he had already excelled in the passenger transportation business and industry and seem to have close ties with the Labour Party that won the, the first election right. that they had, right? So um, so he, so in that way, it, you know, like what was that in, in his favor? But he had a, it was very violent. You know, you were, we started the conversation about saying the world looks like it's falling apart. No, if you read that stretch of history from 1938 to 48 in Jamaica, it appeared as if the island was going to go up in a, you know, conflagration. I mean, yeah. it was like on fire. 
because of the, the now the conflicts or the con confrontations between the plantation owners and the workers and the unions right. and the wharf workers and the this worker. And so he was caught right in the middle of that because he was a captain of industry. Mm -hmm. So again, confrontation, confrontation. So, but so I want to say that he did go to the Supreme Court. They, the, the, the common view is that he, he won the case on a technicality, but, and I didn't put that case in the book deliberately, but, but the point I'm making is it, to me, it reflects the caliber. It reflect, reflects his financial resources mm -hmm. were such that he could afford the legal, legal representation. Because a lot of times these days, when you look at various documentaries about people in prison, you find out that it's because of lack of proper representation right. that they end up with a, a death sentence or a life sentence, or something that they shouldn't have. Right. So to me, it's it's important to, to take that into account because it defines the, the caliber, the character, and the fact that he had the resources to defend himself. It also speaks to his mental capacity and the fact that, you know, I always say education is not just about what you learn in a book. You know, education, some people are, more street smarts can carry you a long way if you really are smart and if you're learning from people around you and that he would take such a case to the supreme court in a time like that was you know admirable and it said a lot to who the man was i think so uh, because i certainly would not have i would have backed down i wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to take on, you know, uh, to that extent. I mean, maybe because of my faith background as well, because he was not grounded in his Methodist faith. Right. He wasn't a practicing Methodist. He inherited Methodism, but he wasn't practicing. So, yeah, and then he was a father as well. But because of his, you know, focus and emphasis on his business acumen and his you know, business and fighting with everybody and then, um, you know, diversifying to his portfolio into rental property and plantation property and all over the place, the children tended not to be taken under his wing. The right. children tended, he had nine children and they tended to be just delegated to his, his wife to be the surrogate and to do her best with most of them. This to me was a little bit of a disappointment in um, his, his portfolio, his, you know, his life story because um, he could have passed on more of his, his character and his approach and his and strengths, I believe. And he had, I think it was six boys that he had. So, you know, and the sons, you know, they expect them to, to come up and, and to take leadership. So he didn't really, although he was a leader, he, he didn't really effectively transfer those qualities and so in effect, by the time he was to bequeath and he did bequeath and, it, and he gave in while he was alive into Beaversley as well as in his will. But by the time that was done, you know, too much water was under the bridge in terms of parenting. But in the middle of all of that, he had his um, wife who was an anchor. She was childless, she was infertile, but she was a, a queen. She was. Ione, she was, she raised she, those children that he brought home to her with absolute love. 
So um, let's, let's talk about that whole idea of the children that he brought home. Um, mm. where, where were these children from? Did he just have children all over he the had place? them with various women. Right. And then the women would raise the children to high school age and then or, you know, and then they would transfer them to him to go to, wow. go to school in Kingston. Okay. They would want the children to go to school in Kingston. Ah, so these children were elsewhere, not in Kingston. They were across the island. Right. And then they would be transferred to him. So he would then pass them off to her. I mean, they were living in the same house for, more, for quite a while. So he was there as well, but, you know, more absentee than present. But she did a good job in as much as she could in passing on love to the children and so that's what to me made the difference in terms of my relationship with my own father who I felt his love right he was loving as a father he might not have been present either he was a visiting father but he was loving right and caring and providing so he so he, he got he, that he from Ioni, not from his right. account right Right. I think that's who he got that love and care. And he says he got it from his grandmother as well in the country. So, yeah, but the leadership part, though, that is the quotient. And I, I was listening to you with Pete Kennedy mm -hmm. on that podcast. And I, I totally, uh, it resonated so powerfully with me because the leadership quality is very important yes. for us to pass on to our children yes. and our grandchildren. And if you don't pass that on, then that can make the difference between survival and you know disintegration. Yeah. So yeah. Well, given given that that portion of what Hezekiah did was not really passed on, what happened after he passed away? What happened to his business? Well, he left a will, okay. Um, and he had passed property on prior to his passing. And then he pretty much left it in the care of two main people, which were his cousin and his, his, my father, his son, right. one of the sons got the, you know, that sort of lion's share then. Okay. Um, and he did give those to others and he gave generously the will. It was a generous will. I have a copy, you know, um, but of course people are never satisfied. So, and a lot of times because of the lack again of the leadership and the business training and guidance they, they they lost what they inherited anyway right. they sort of were not able to sustain or build on they weren't even able to build on wow. what they had received and that happens yeah it, it, it happens so yeah, often yeah. that because you have no no real leadership you weren't raised with real leadership or money management skills or any of these things that you get a lump sum of money how many times it happens to lottery winners you know, they get this lump sum of money and, you know, they buy, the, buy a fancy car and buy a massive house and two years later they're broke and selling it all. Uh, it's yeah. a very common story. But what do you want people to take away from your book? What, what is well, I want, I want to um, invite the men. I really want more men to read my book because um, they, it, is a, it is a balanced um, presentation of the roles of the men and women from 1905 to 1959, okay? Mm -hmm. But I would like more men to read because I don't know if men realize how vital they are in, in, the, in the upbringing of the children. Yeah. 
Um, and no, no, you know, there is more focus and more involvement of men and kudos to them. That is really phenomenal and I applaud it. But there are still areas where we are not there yet. So what I wanted to take away is that the parental role is to me should be the primary. You know, I mean, if you're getting to have children, I don't care whether you have them with 10 women or you have them with one woman, but you know, whatever. And that's not the issue. The issue is if you are acknowledging that you're a parent, a father, you know, um, of a child or a mother, because in some cases- it, It's the mother. But in this case, it's the father that is the issue. The missing father and, and fathering. Right. And teaching and training and grooming and developing and strengthening and that kind of thing. The courage that you would get by being associated with a father who can stand up you right. know, to opposition, you know, and survive and, vi and win. And win, and win, and win, and a win against the odds in a very interesting time that was not for him. Mm -hmm. So my, my, what they're taking away is that the other thing is that there is no shame in infertility. You know, you can be a mother in so many different ways apart from biologically. Let, me, so let, me, let me stick a pin there. What do you think made Ioni um, take all these children and raise these children that were his. Well, she was an only child and she was also privileged because her father was also very wealthy and she was an only child. And I believe she was also raised by the nuns at Immaculate Conception High School. She was, she went to school there. So she had that very strong spiritual core, you know, that had been nurtured in her. And so I think this is why she was, she was a loving woman. Like I knew her. I didn't meet my grandfather, but I knew Ioni. And she was warm. She was sweet. She was cuddly. She was, you know, a little bit on the heavier side when I met her, mm -hmm. but she was always embracing and, and smiling and, you know, that kind of personality. And so, but she, and she was financially secure. And, you know, so I think that, um, you know, I, I just want to encourage women to be the mother with the heart, be the mother with the heart that Ioni had not necessarily um, feel, you know, deprived because you have not been, you know, you can adopt a child. I mean, right. not even physically, but, you know, Fostering. emotionally, mentoring, whatever. I mean, there's so many ways. Mm -hmm. So that I want to say. And um, I also want to say that we need to remember that we are creatures. We are not, we are not the creator, we are creatures. Right. We've been given free will and we have a choice. And it is up to us if we're going to try to do it on our own. Um, but we weren't created to function. To function on our own. Yeah. Right. We weren't created to. So function. it's our choice if we want to have heaven on earth or we want to, you know, build our own other version of whatever we think we want. <laughs> but I believe that we were designed to be in community, um, you'd be supporting one another right. so that we won't succumb. To other whatever um, happened thing. to the bus company though the specifically the bus company you see he had more than one bus company he had the one that the government had given him and he had the his own that right. he had built for himself so when their thing fell apart he just you know went back into his own and then that's what my father inherited and it was very prosperous it was you know very you know lucrative and then my father for whatever reason diverted from that um, into truck sales and truck service and other things. 
So, and they had a club and my father was involved in that and, and all that too. So at the so, end of the day though, at the end of the day, even though Hezekiah was not the present father and not the father who necessarily imparted um, his business acumen and all of that, your dad still got it. You know, well, he, I wouldn't say he got it, no, because he, he got the physical realty, he got the physical assets. But he didn't get the, oh. the mind. Okay. He didn't get the mind. And you know, there's a passage in scripture that said when Jesus was teaching his disciples, he opened their minds. So to me, parents have that privilege of opening Open the minds mind. of the child to impart. If, if we are not aware, it, the biggest tragedy to me in life, and I'm feeling emotional as I say this, is is the ability of a parent to transfer their best to their child. Their child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the day, this book is really about parenting. It's about love. It's about um, passing on the good things that you mm -hmm. have in your life. Pat, it has been, Patricia, it has been wonderful. Um, you know, good book, Hezekiah, Many Houses, One Life. It really tells a story. It tells a story that is very similar to a lot of Caribbean stories. The story of a man who came from nothing, built himself into something really big, came from nothing as in generations back, built himself into something really big, but um, his family life suffered. And that's a very, very common story. And it's a story with a lesson of how we need to make sure that no matter what else is going on, we home is good, home is taken care of. We impart into our children. We raise up children with um, good values and you know, who can build not just financial wealth, but love and stable families and all those other things that come with it. Thank you so very much, ladies and gentlemen. The book is Hezekiah, Many Houses, One Life, available in all the same places you get all your books. And uh, yeah, I just wanna say thank you so much, Patricia, for this time. See you again next week, same place, same time, when we get a look at what else I have on my shelf. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so. The video of this interview is available on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Visit my website at jfallonreed.com and you can download your copy of my free audiobook, Time and Seasons. And remember to subscribe to my other podcast, Exchanging Pain for Praise.